I invite you to turn with me now to our New Testament passage this morning, Matthew chapter 22. You can find our text on page 827 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. We will begin reading uh, down at verse 55. Before we read, I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon and thought to yourself, I think he's talking about me. I'm not. Let me just tell you that ahead of time. I'm not talking about you. But I've sat there and thought, man, there, that preacher or that text or the Holy Spirit is reading me like a book. Jesus has been teaching. And his hearers know he's talking about them. We've already seen it. There's no other audience. The Jewish leaders know Jesus is talking about them. Three parables in a row, a three-point sermon, parable after parable after parable, all aimed at the religious leaders, all warning them what will happen if they reject this preacher, this son, and this gospel. He finished his third point, his third parable last week. Let's see if our hearers have learned their lesson. Picking up in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, sometimes your word goes right over our head. It goes right past us. We sleep and we doze through those very words of conviction that are designed to strike our heart and to lead us to Christ. And Lord, we see in this text blind men, deaf men, ignoring the words of Jesus. And my prayer today is that would not be us. Oh God, open our eyes, no matter how painful it is. Unstop our deaf ears. Break our stiff necks. That we would come trusting Christ believing him, repenting of our sin, and resting in your glorious gospel of grace to us today. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I had a professor when I was in college who taught lots of things, but what I remember the most about this professor is that he loved Oreos. He loved Oreo cookies. This is his legacy now, 20 years later. The man loved Oreos. He was a philosophy professor. And he would weave his love of Oreos into his three Oreos every night before bed. Any more, and that was too much. Any less, and he just couldn't handle it, right? 
So every single night before bed, he ate three Oreos. He was not a Christian, but he knew the truth that we learn in God's word, that God creates and gives us good things, wonderful, good things like Oreos. But as with everything, our human nature can take a good thing and we can make it into an idol. We can take a good thing and we can make it, we can prioritize it in our life so it is the best thing. And thus we're guilty of idolatry. Maybe you have, I should rephrase that, you do have Oreos in your life. Things that if you don't keep in the proper place, they will take over. They will become more important to you than even God himself. Maybe it is something as simple as food or drink, right? Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's your relationships or lack thereof. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your lack of work. Maybe it's your retirement, right? All of these things, good things God gives us, we can make into the ultimate thing. One thing that we are consistently tempted by is politics. And that's what the text is about. We can take politics from a good place in our life. We can make it into an ultimate thing. Jesus addresses that in our verses. Jesus addresses our idolatrous tendency to take something good like government that God gives us and make it the ultimate thing. In our passage, he addresses how we interact with politics and government. Then he shows us how we interact with God. What I want you to see is that he teaches us as Christians that we are to honor our government. Wherever we live, wherever lands we're in, wherever time we're living, whatever government system there is, we are in one way or the other to honor the authorities over us. And yet, we are never to give the government, politicians, kings, our heart. Our hearts belong to God and God alone. That's the tension I want to show you this morning in the text. That though we honor our government, we give our hearts only to God. Though we honor our government, we give our hearts only to God. This is not an easy principle to get to. So we're going to take a couple steps uh, through this text. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This is a bit of a, quote, teaching sermon. All right. So I'm going to talk about Jesus and grace and all that good stuff. Right, but we've got a couple teaching points that Jesus gets at that we need to cover uh, along the way. So bear with me. If you're a note taker, uh, this is the sermon for you. All right? <laughs> all right, we're going to follow our three steps to get to our principle. Step one is the plot, verses 15 and 16, the plot. There is a plot to get Jesus. Not a story arc, not an not a area of ground to plant in, but a wicked plot, a plan to get, to catch Jesus. You see at the very beginning how Matthew introduces this section to us. Then the Pharisees went and what? Plotted, planned, schemed how to entangle Jesus in his words. Entanglement, right? They want to trap him, right? They want to get his feet stuck in the weeds, right? Throw a lasso around his horns, right? Whatever it is, they want to get Jesus trapped in some way. Now, Jesus doesn't get trapped very easily. Uh, They're going to present sort of a uh, political slash theological question to him, hoping to get him tricked up. But it's not that he won't know the answer. No, no, the problem is whatever answer he gives is going to make somebody mad. 
That's the trick. There's two clear ways to answer this question. You either pay the tax or you don't. But whatever answer he gives is going to make somebody mad. And here's the thing. Here's why this is such a wicked trap that they plan, is that they send the two different types of people who are going to get mad no matter what. They send Pharisees, then they send Herodians. You see these two groups together. I'll come back to this in a moment. But they both want Jesus to answer in a different way. So it's not that Jesus doesn't know what to say. It's that whatever he says, he's either going to make the Pharisees mad or he's going to make the Herodians mad. They're setting him up. What you need to know about that before we get to what these two groups actually believe is that they disagree with each other. They don't even really like each other all that much. They don't really get along with each other all that much. But as the, the old saying goes, politics makes strange bedfellows. We can make strange alliances with people we don't really have much in common with if we share a political goal, right? They share a goal of trapping, discrediting, and ultimately putting Jesus to death. And who cares about their little petty political differences as long as they can get the goal of punishing Christ. They want to entangle him in his words. They do this, they begin in verse 16 with with flattery. Now, if you were in the adult Sunday school class today, you heard about how to ask good questions. This is exhibit number one of how not to ask questions, all right? Don't ask people questions like this. They're not asking a question. They're trying to trap him, right? And they do so by flattery. They say all of these sweet and wonderful and flowery things about Jesus. Why? Because they think he might not answer. I mean, he's good at not answering their stupid questions, right? He's pretty good at that. He might not answer their question. So they're going to set up a a second level of the trap. So they're going to say, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so smart. You're not worried about what people think. So of course you're going to answer this. Because then what happens if he doesn't answer? It means he does care what people think. Not, not really, but in their little uh, convoluted worldview of trapping Jesus in his own words. And they say wonderful things about Jesus. I mean, we could confess this verse right in our confession of faith. It's pretty good theology, right? He's a teacher. He teaches the ways that are true. He speaks of God truthfully. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He's not swayed by appearances. All things that are true about Jesus spoken from a wicked heart. Or as Psalm 55 says, Their speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. Smooth, buttery speech, but war was in his heart. The words are true, but they're used for wicked purposes. You see what's going on here? You see people that are crafty in designing a trap that Jesus is going to make somebody mad. They are crafty in phrasing their words in a certain way such that they think that Jesus has to respond. They are sons of their father, the devil. The opposition to Jesus here and continuing represents the opposition of the enemy of God, the devil himself. They are crafty and yet they are blind. Because They're doing the very action that Jesus has just pictured in three parables about them in a row. Jesus has just told three parables about how those who are offered the kingdom of God, those who are given free and open access to the wedding feast, 
those who are to bear fruit in line uh, with the vineyard that the loving master has planted and has entrusted to the tenants. Those who are warned that if they reject this, if they repeatedly reject this, the wrath of the king and the wrath of the master is to come. So what do they do? After three parables, they do the very thing that Jesus has said and warned them not to do. You see, they, they appear crafty and, and wise and scheming and plotting, but they are just as deaf and dumb as can be, ignoring the very warnings of Jesus. What a warning for us, right? We who could craft a well-worded question, we who could know our, our, our right theological categories, can yet be blind and deaf to the very words and warning of Jesus. That's the plot. Seems kind of foolish, right? Seems like Jesus is going to see right through this, but I want to show you it poses a pretty big problem. And that's our second step in getting to the principle is the problem here in verse 17. They bring up this question of taxes. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay the taxes to Caesar or not? This question poses a big problem. The problem is taxes, right? Uh, and you're thinking to yourself, you're right. Taxes are a problem, right? <laughs> they are a problem for a few reasons. Actually, uh, some pretty serious reasons. The, the surface level problem here is the obvious. Nobody likes taxes, right? Nobody enjoys taxes. Even those of us who uh, uh, make a living off of other people paying their taxes, we don't even enjoy taxes, right? The idea that we have to do all of this hard work to figure out how much money to give the government uh, drives most of us crazy. So on the surface level, sort of nobody even wants to talk about, nobody wants to, to, to discuss taxes. But a deeper problem here is where the taxes go. Because for the, the Jewish men and women of the day, their taxes didn't really go to their own government. Their taxes didn't go to support a government of the people. Their taxes went to go and support a foreign government. They were ruled over politically at the time by the Roman government, by the Romans. So they're a Jewish people, a national people, and yet they are ruled over, they're controlled by, they, they pay their ta taxes and tribute to sort of these foreign oppressors. It would be bad enough, it is bad enough that we have to pay taxes once a year. At least our taxes go to Americans, right? Imagine if Canada took us over, right? You're supposed to laugh at that, right? But imagine if Canada invaded and took us over and our taxes now aren't going to at least officials that we have elected together they're going to our foreign oppressors that would make it all the worse right so what do you do what do you do if you're oppressed by a foreign nation and they're requiring you to pay a tax that's the question here and there's two different answers the pharisees have one approach to this question and the herodians have another approach both Jewish groups, they're sort of like different denominations of the Jewish people proposing different answers to this question. The Pharisees' solution is don't pay the taxes. Now, the Pharisees are sort of the, the, the hardliners, right? They are the ones who are uh, uh, waiting for, uh, preparing for the coming of the Messiah. They particularly think the Messiah is going to be a Jewish political king that will slay and defeat the Roman emperor and the Roman kings and the Roman rulers around them and take up that very throne so that their taxes will not go to the Messianic king. So they say, 
don't pay the tax. Here's the irony, though, because when Jesus asks them for a coin with which they pay the tax, guess what? They have a coin. (laughs) And he says, who's on the coin? Well, the Roman governor. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. They're religious leaders who are promoting something to their people, and they're living in a different way. The Herodians have come up with a different solution. This is also a group of Jewish people. Their solution is to pay the tax. And it's more than just paying the tax. They support the Roman government over them. So much so that they take on the name of King Herod. That's pretty bad, right? A Jewish people taking on the name of their foreign oppressive government? Why would you do that? Well, you're probably going to get some favor, right? They're going to like that sect of the Jewish population better than the Pharisees. They're thumbing their nose at the Roman government. The root problem, though, deeper than not liking taxes, deeper than just uh, one of these solutions or the other, paying taxes to an oppressive government, is that at that moment in history, the, the Jewish worldview of government and politics cannot provide an answer as to what the people of God do when they live in a nation that's not theirs. To put it another way, Jewish theocracy cannot provide the answers. Their one and only view of government is one in which God is recognized as the supreme and sovereign ruler, not just by the members of the the nation, but by the government system itself. So how do they live and exist as the people of God under a foreign government. I mean, think about the history of Israel for a moment. This isn't a long history lesson, brief history lesson. Uh, They first existed as a family, right? Abram and his family kind of wandering around. They're pilgrims. They're here. They're there, right? They're wandering. It's not their place. They're not governors. They're not kings. They're not leaders. They're under the authority of others. They enter the promised land. It's their land. They have their leaders, judges and kings, such that sort of their religion and their politics are the same, right? Their tax goes to the king, the king who is both a political king and a religious and spiritual king. So it's sort of an easy worldview. It's all smushed into one, right? There's no separation of church and state. It's all there together. It's easy. But then they're exiled out of their land. They now are not only kicked out of their land, their royal throne is defeated. So now they live under other Authorities, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, now the Romans. And their tax now goes to a foreign government, and they interpret that as a result of the exile as divine judgment. So they exist now, and here the Messiah has come. And what kind of kingdom will this Messiah bring? Because it's not going to be like the pilgrims anymore, right? We're not, we're not, we're not wandering around if we have a king. We're not paying tax to a foreign king. So their only mindset then is a nation, a return of the nation state of Israel. And so when Jesus comes back, I'm sorry, comes for the first time. And if he says no tax, they're thinking political government. Let's go. He's taken the throne today. We just cheered for him in Jerusalem two days ago. Now it's time. He says no tax, political, messianic, national, ethnic king on the throne. It's our time again. But if he says you do pay the tax to your Roman oppressors, then he can't be the messianic king anymore. 
He doesn't fit their idea of a Messiah to come. Whether he says yes or no, it's not that he will make the wrong or right people mad. It's that nobody has any idea what this new kingdom is supposed to be like. Not the Herodians, not the Pharisees. And Jesus comes and in his answer blows it up to show them what he has said before. His kingdom is not of this world. So how does he solve the problem? That's what I want to show you thirdly in the text. How his answer is crucial to understanding how his kingdom is not a political kingdom. And that's the principle in verses 18 to 21. Here we find this famous verse, verse 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God uh, the things that are God. God's, excuse me. This little verse, it's like the seed of all political theology that is to come. Paul and Peter are going to write some good stuff. We'll quote them in a moment about political theology. Uh, We're going to get early church fathers. We're going to get reformers all through the church. The seed form of the right teaching of a biblical understanding of civil government and politics is right here in verse 21. It doesn't have all the answers, but it's got some pretty good principles. So we need to understand what it means to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's kind of principle sub point number one. And render to God the things that are God. God's. Principle subpoint number two. What does it mean to render to Caesar? Well, that word render just means give, right? So give to Caesar uh, what is Caesar's. And as we understand the the principle here, we're not just thinking about Caesar. Caesar is a representative here of the Roman government. And as we understand that Jesus in seed form is giving us a, a principle by which we understand our relationship to civil government. I want us to think of Caesar here as symbolizing sort of any... the old language for it was civil magistrates or what we would call them civil government, right? The secular government in the state uh, around us. So three truths I want to give you. Here's the teaching part of the sermon. You thought you'd already gotten through the teaching part. Here's the real teaching part, right? The three, three truths about what it means to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Number one, God establishes the authority of civil government for our good. God establishes the authority of civil government for our good. That's the shortest of the sentence I can make it. If you want a longer sentence, you can look in your bulletin in the announcement section at the bottom. There's a quote from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23. That's the long version of what I just said. You can check it now while I'm talking. You can check it later. But that is the more detailed, older language. How God establishes the authority of civil government for our good. Or as The Apostle Paul says it in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Government, whatever it is, whatever type it is, whatever kind it is, whatever time it is, is not invented by mankind. Government, as an institution, is invented by God. God gives earthly, worldly forms of civil authority, and he gives it for our good. At its most basic level, the Bible tells us that civil authority, civil government, enforces good and punishes bad. At its most basic level, 
That's why Romans 13 says that God has given civil authorities the sword. Right? The church doesn't have the sword to enforce. The state has that. To encourage what is good and to punish what is evil. So that the people of God, you and me, the church then and now, can, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, lead peaceful and quiet lives. We are to live in a peaceful, quiet, just world. And that justice is maintained by God's civil servants through whatever form of government in every time and place that exists. God has established that authority for our good. Secondly, the second truth, that means that God instructs us to honor civil government for our good. He instructs us to honor civil government for our good. Now, kids, bear with me for a moment. You probably haven't thought much about your president and your congressman and stuff like that. What you have thought about are babysitters, right? And you get babysitters. Mom and dad uh, go out for dinner or a date or something. And I know some babysitters you like and some you don't like, right? If you're like me, you like the babysitters that let you stay up a little bit late, all right? Let you eat a little extra dessert. You don't like the ones that just kind of stare at their phone the whole time. You're just sitting there, right? But when you get a babysitter, mom and dad say what? They say, you listen to them, right? We're in charge. We're your parents, but they're here watching over you for now, and you honor and respect them. Don't tell our government that I think they're like babysitters, but there's a little truth to that, right? (laughs) There is some truth that God rules over his people, but he gives sort of four times and seasons these earthly civil authorities that we honor. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So we submit and we obey and we pray for our civic leaders. And what else do we do? We pay taxes. Because that's what God tells us to in his word. But there's a third truth. I know you're waiting on this third truth. And that is this. God limits the power of civil government for our good. He establishes it. He calls us to honor it. But then he limits the power of civil government for our good. Our governments have no right to break God's law. No matter where they are or when they're in existence, they have no right to break the law of God. They have no right to establish laws that break or violate the law of God as found in nature and is found in his word. That is an extreme limit that in our modern day, a lot of civil governments don't recognize. It's still a limit placed uh, in God's word such that when governments do violate the word of God, who do we submit to? We obviously submit to God. We do not obey as citizens of this world when we are commanded to act contrary to God's word. We see this picture in Acts chapter 4 with Peter and John, and they're commanded to stop preaching about Jesus. You remember this? And you remember their response. Peter and John answered them, said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we had seen and heard. They're commanded to break the law of God and they refuse to do so. God limits civil authority. He also limits civil authority because the government, though they have the right of the sword, they don't have the right of the keys of the kingdom. That's a spiritual authority. 
They don't have the right to preach and administer the sacraments. Right? Their authority is limited in the civil sphere. Why does all this matter? All, right? all this matters because Jesus has come to bring to existence and reality the kingdom of heaven that will spread to the very ends of the earth. And the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of this world. It's not a kingdom that builds other kingdoms of this world. It's not a political kingdom. The people of God go forth and spread his gospel and his message to every earthly political kingdom from his first coming to his second. We are not dependent. He is not dependent. His church is not dependent on political kingdoms. This principle must work wherever the seed of the gospel is sown, which is the very ends of the earth. So no matter what type of government, no matter what political party is in power, to the very ends of the earth, Jesus will send and spread his gospel that he will have people in his kingdom from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not institute kingdoms. It infiltrates them such that there are people in every earthly kingdom part of God's heavenly kingdom. And that's just rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. <laughs> that's just the first part. That, y'all, that's just the small part of this verse. The real meat of this verse is we are secondly to render to God the things that are God's. John Calvin, writing of this verse, uh, said it shows a clear distinction between the spiritual and the civil government. And you know as well as I do which one of those is more important. We are to honor civil government, but we give our hearts to our spiritual Lord. One of the tensions within the body of Christ, I shared this on our church Facebook page this week, this quote from J.C. Ryle, is to ask the question, where do the things of Caesar end and the things of God begin? That's a tricky question. That takes time and, and, and wisdom and, and working it out in different times and in different government systems, right? And quite honestly, some of y'all are going to answer that, that question different than other of y'all are going to answer that question. Ryle says it's one of the most difficult questions in the church to come to a consensus on. I'm not going to give you the consensus. I'm going to ask you to be humble with other people who might not have the same answer to that question that you do. I'm going to ask you in your worldview to show humility and grace towards fellow Christians as we wrestle together with the challenging implications of this seed verse of what we render to Caesar. But what we all agree on, what nobody disagrees on, is what we render to God. Think about this for a moment. If the thing that bears the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar, then what belongs to God? That which bears his image. And what bears the image of God? We do. We do. God has created man and woman in his image. And it's not just our physical bodies. It's not even primarily our physical bodies. It's our souls. We're created in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, unlike any other creature in the world, that we reflect, we bear the very image of God. So if our little coins with a picture of the king goes to him, what about us who bear the image of the king of the world? To whom do we belong? What must we give to God, all of us? Jesus says here, pay your taxes to Caesar. Part two is going to come in a couple weeks when he says, you love the Lord your God with your taxes? No, 
with your mind, your body, your soul, and your strength. Everything goes to God. Taxes are easy. You just pay them. What about the allegiance of our hearts? Here's the danger. I'm going to say this and we'll be done. The danger is we give more than just honor to our civil government. We eat more than those three Oreos, right? It's, the danger is not government in moderation. The danger is government in excess. The Herodians, they bowed down to their oppressors. They took on the name of the foreign king. You think they made an idol of their kings? The Pharisees, on the other hand, they wanted a king to return, but not the real king when he showed up. They wanted a king on their terms. They wanted a king who would bring in an earthly kingdom so that they would return to rule and power. The question is not so much, who do you vote for? That's an important question, right? More importantly is, where is your heart when you vote? Where is your hope when you cast a ballot? Where is your trust when you look to your earthly civil government? Because here's the truth. Here's the, the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king of the world. Jesus is the king of kings. And his kingdom is not of this world. He did not come first to take a crown of glory. He came to take a crown of thorns. He came not to overthrow the civil government, but what? To submit to it. He didn't die on just any cross. He died on a Roman cross. Submitting himself to earthly government for our good. And by that cross, by the blood of the Lamb, by the perfect and sufficient substitute of Jesus, the doors of the kingdom of heaven stand wide open. He holds them open by his grace and his mercy that we might come in. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, honor the government, sure. But give your heart, all of who you are, to God alone. Let's pray. Our Lord, you know how guilty we can be of prioritizing the things of this world in our minds, in our hearts, in our wallets. You know how we can be fickle, riding the emotions of the time, uh, riding the, the very election cycles that come every two years. I pray, O oh Lord, for our church. I pray for your church to the very ends of the earth. And churches in nations where they, their faith is outlawed. And churches in nations where our faith is persecuted. I pray, O oh Lord, that they and we would learn what it means to honor, yes, to honor those you have put over us. Oh, but, Lord, keep us from that danger of giving any more than a speck of honor to our worldly leaders, that we would reserve our very heart and soul for you. Convict us, lead us to the King of kings, that we would enter his heavenly kingdom by faith alone today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to close with hymn 526, He Leadeth 